Welcome to the Grove Church. My name is Kent and thank you for being here today. You can find all these videos and more on our website or you can check out our podcasts of these sermons made available through Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. And I wanna thank all of you who are financially partnering with The Grove monthly to help all people experience new life in Jesus. If you're interested in giving today, you can visit our website or you can text the dollar amount you want to give to 84321 and then follow the prompts to get it all set up. Well, we're gonna be jumping back into our series, Genesis, in the beginning. We've been tracing the story of the gospel from the very pages of Genesis as it intersects with our lives today. So I'd like to begin today by discussing this question together. What has been the hardest part of 2020 for you? 2020 felt like I had to take each and every day, one at a time, like a foot in front of the other, (laughs) more than really any other time in my life. However, I believe that was actually turned out to be very beneficial for me. Minus all of the hard things that happened during 2020, especially for living on mission for God in this world. As we open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, I believe we'll see that if we want to live in accordance with God's mission, then we need to make decisions in line with that each and every day. Today's text is about the responses of two men to God's revelation. God reveals to Abraham and to Lot, two righteous men, his plan to bring judgment on Sodom. Now, the men have two different responses that ultimately lead to two very different outcomes. For Abraham, he responds by interceding for the whole of Sodom, the whole city, even as they've the ones who have committed these grave sins in verse 20, for all for the sake of 50 to even just 10 righteous people among them. This ultimately leads Abraham to the promise being fulfilled of him fathering the son by way of his seemingly hopelessly barren elderly wife, Sarah. Well, in contrast, Lot responds by dragging his feet. And then he intercedes on behalf of another city, but he could care less for because he didn't want them, because he didn't want to personally go to the hill country. This leaves Lot morally wrecked and he ends up fathering incestuous children through his daughters. Let's jump into this narrative beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Memar. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, the story is going to include these three men, but as we soon will see that these are more than just men, especially when the two head towards Sodom to investigate the city and the third remains with Abraham. Abraham has a long exchange with a third guest who is referred to throughout the story as the Lord. The original language uses the word Lord that is reserved for God himself. And this is referred to as a theophany. However, since Jesus is coming incarnate, we have a fuller understanding of what's actually happening here. This is none other than Jesus pre-incarnate himself, meaning it's him before he takes on the flesh as a baby in Nazareth. So remember, Jesus is God. He has no beginning or end. 
He's not created or begotten like we are as humans. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1.1 here is pointing out that Jesus was eternal with the Father before any of creation. And Jesus claims this for himself in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, says Jesus talking to the Father, having accomplished the work you gave to me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The doctrine of the eternality of Christ is one of the distinguishing marks of biblical Christianity. So we have no problem understanding Jesus' arrival here in these verses because he was always with God. However, he was not identified as being anyone other than God the Father because God had yet to reveal his true nature to his people. Now, once Jesus comes on the scene, God then reveals that there are three persons in the Godhead. Now, all of these persons are equally God, yet distinct in role and personhood. That is why Jesus can talk with the Father while on earth during his ministry and then promise to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with his people once he departs to be with the Father. And to be clear, the Trinity is not like anything that we have in creation. Some have likened the Trinity to water that can be in three different states, solid, gas, and vapor. Yet, have you ever seen water in all three at the same time? No, it's not possible. Yet, God is completely different than water. God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. And here we see Jesus showing up before he officially arrives on the scene in the New Testament. So what happens with God showing up with Abraham? We'll check out verse 3. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and, wa to, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham went and told Sarah and his servants to make food for the guest. He then heads back to his guests who then ask him about Sarah, his wife. Abraham tells them that she's in a tent and the visitor then tells Abraham that in a year he will return and Sarah will have a child of her own. I love how Sarah responds because she is old in verse 12. Check it out. So Sarah laughed to herself. So no one else heard necessarily. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? <laughs> I love that response. And we hear what the Lord says in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And what did he respond? No, but you did laugh. Now, I'm sure all of you have been in that awkward moment where everyone knows someone's lying and then someone actually calls them out on it in front of everybody about the lie, which 
totally makes the rest of us look around and going, uh, yeah, that's super awkward. You know, uh, you start wondering like, hey, so how about them Lakers, right? It's just incredibly awkward moment. And I just love that the, the, the Bible captures this. This is another clear indication that this is God himself come to grace Abraham with his presence. But God is not just here to reiterate what he's already promised Abraham just in the, pri- the prior chapter. In verse 16, Abraham sets out with these men as they journey towards Sodom. The Lord then reveals to Abraham his plans, reminding him of God's mission for him to bless all the families of the earth. And then God tells him in verse 20 what is about to take place. Check it out. Then the Lord said, Behold, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, and but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So these two men go toward Sodom, but Abraham and God are left. So here we see it is God himself visiting Abraham as one of these seemingly men. Here Abraham begins to intercede for the people of Sodom. He asks God, wouldn't he relent destruction on Sodom if 50 righteous people were living there? God graciously agrees with Abraham to not destroy Sodom if 50 righteous people are there. Abraham continues to intercede for Sodom again and again. If, if, what if there was only 45? What if 40? What if 30? What if 20? And at last, 10. All along, God patiently agrees to be merciful to each of these intercessions through Abraham. Abraham, however, responds with care and sensitivity towards the people in Sodom, even as God rains down his judgment on them. Abraham is living out the promise of being a blessing to all families of the earth, while Lot has taken the blessing for himself. And this will end poorly for Lot and us if we follow similarly. Abraham demonstrates how our priority and focus should be on God's kingdom, his mission, the fulfillment of his promises. Abraham interceded for those he might have never been in communion with. His compassion and care for the others are commendable and an example of how we ought to interact with others even those who we would completely disagree with on important matters. Let's take some time to discuss this question together. As the church, how are we a blessing to our community? Abraham also here demonstrates God's heart for the nations. He's concerned about his nephew Lot. However, not once does Abraham ask God to intercede purely on behalf of his family member Lot. Rather, he is asking God to spare all of Sodom, the entire city, for the sake of even just 10 righteous. We ought to do the same through prayer for those around us. As a follower of Jesus, we are called and empowered on a mission to help those around us. Jesus sends us to seek and save the lost. He calls us into action to make disciples of all people. We may not know where to begin. Do we grab a blowhorn and sit on a corner and yell at people or carry a huge wooden cross to work at school? Well, I'm going to say no. That's not necessarily the best way to go about it. We need to be able to help people engage with Jesus through relationships. 
and finding the gospel in a real and personal way. It may start with a meal or a party, then move on to discussions about faith and your faith particularly. Yet one of the best places to start is to begin praying for people around you to discover faith in Jesus. So the question is, who are you praying for to come to Jesus? The narrative is going to continue as we turn to the parallel episode of Lot having God's plan revealed to him. Yet this is a completely different outcome. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Here, the two men who left Abraham and the Lord are revealed as his messengers, angels. Lot, just like Abraham, meets them and bows to the ground as a customary greeting to visitors. Lot then says to them, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, then rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Why would Lot be so forceful in his hospitality to not allow these men to stay in the public square, but rather in his home? Well, again, some context is that travelers in those times would seek shelter in towns by, to be protected by the walls and the general security of a city that would have for itself, and they would sleep in the town squares. This was a far better option than camping in the open wild where animals or robbers to, could attack you. Yet, Lot knew what was going to occur next, and he had seen it before, and it gives him pause to turn his back on these guests of Sodom. Verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us. For what purpose? that we may know them. These men weren't looking to know what their names were. These men were looking to rape these guests of Lot. The men of Sodom were committing this grave sin that was referred back in chapter 18, verse 20. Yet, as we read further in elsewhere in the Bible, it actually calls back on Sodom. In Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, it talks about the sin of Sodom, and it's said to be abusing the poor and needy in their prosperity. Check it out, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. The Ezekiel passage, however, does not mean that the desires of the men of Sodom in the Genesis account to have a homosexual relationship with these heavenly guests were not part of the reason, or even that the Ezekiel passage dismisses that. Because in fact, in verse 50, it explains that they were haughty and did an abomination before me. Also, Ezekiel refers to the daughters of Sodom. This possibly might mean that the women's sins of Sodom were what Ezekiel passage explains, and these were not represented in the Genesis narrative, for it focuses on the men. This grave sin of, of Sodom was homosexual rape. 
Even the interpreters who believe the Bible allows for consensual, monogamous, homosexual relationships do agree that the Genesis account portrays a gang rape that is atrocious. Because all will say, all rape is wrong and immoral, no matter who it's against. I believe taking a pause and explaining the Bible's teaching on homosexuality here is warranted and important. So let me clarify a few things before we begin. First, God loves all people because they're made in His image. This gives them value and purpose. There's no secondary person. There's all dignity and equality in being made human. Second, when we speak about homosexuality from the Bible's perspective, it may come across as hate speech. This could not be further from our purpose and intention. Our hope is to give clear teaching from the Bible on the subject so that it might encourage and strengthen us as believers and to in our witness and relationships with the people from these communities. We believe that no one's identity should be shrouded in an act or label applied to them or given by fellow fallen image bearers. God is the only one that can give you value, image, and dignity. What you do sexually does not define your value, but the one who loves you and who gave himself to bring you back to himself can, and that's Jesus. The third thing to clarify is when examining what the Bible says about homosexuality, it's important to distinguish between homosexual behavior and homosexual inclinations or attractions. It's the difference between an active sin and the passive condition of being tempted. Christians are called to not act on their desires that would lead them to sin. Therefore, it's completely possible for a Christian to be tempted and have homosexual inclinations and attractions that are not acted upon and therefore not sin. So let's jump into what the Bible teaches about homosexual activity. Many have pointed to this specific passage of Genesis 19 as explaining that homosexual relationships are immoral. While this passage condemns the actions of the men of Sodom, there's a quite a difference between gang rape and the consensual homosexual relationship between two adults. One of the clearest scriptures on homosexual activity is actually found in Leviticus 18. 22. It's a by far better metric to see what the Bible teaches on homosexuality. Here's what it says. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. They claim that there's a mistake in the translation or the transmission of the text and that there's actually been this something that was missing, which has now been added, is that this is prohibited in the temple of Melech, who was a false god. Now, they claim that this prohibition is directed towards idol worship where men would participate in homosexual relationships there, but it does not refer in their minds to consensual, homosexual, monogamous relationships. The second thing that they would disagree with is that they would note that we don't practice the Old Testament law, so it doesn't count in the New Testament church. The point, in fact, would be numerous laws Jesus seemingly himself dismisses while still upholding the law of God. Now, unfortunately, that is both a true perspective and partly misleading. Jesus was not just dismissing the law, but Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. 
And the Old Testament law is not needed to be followed now because of the freedom we have in Christ and been given His righteousness. This is not a freedom to sin, but to focus on Christ and His forgiveness more than on our ritual cleanliness that He won for us on the cross. The other problem with this argument is that it denies the foundational provisions of the law of God, which reveals God's character, or one might say His design, His way. Therefore, Leviticus is still revealing that homosexual relationships do not fit into God's design. And we've seen this in Genesis. Often, homosexual relationships are pointed to as the clearest indication of sin because it goes against the clear and natural design God has made in the beginning, as we've seen in Genesis. A sexual union was designed to be between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage, of a marriage relationship. Although our culture disagrees with this, and even if we are being honest as heterosexuals, that goes against our very innate sexual desires that, we're, we, that we desire to have sex with anyone we wish to. Often in our culture today, sex is seen more like adult play than an intimate, soul-binding, loving, sacrificial commitment between spouses. So it's no wonder that our culture has embraced homosexuality as another example of this love play. However, God's design flies in the face of the, this way of thinking, and this can upset us and cause us to become defensive and agitated that someone would tell us how we ought to live our lives, right? You do you. Yet that is exactly what the Bible is describing as sin, the choosing of our way apart from God's way and his revealed way. What I love most about Christianity is how broken, sinful, gone their own way people can see the error of their way, admit it, and through faith begin to go God's way. See, the Bible teaches us that all sexual activity, content, play outside the God-designed bounds of marriage is sin. Yet some have claimed that homosexuality is somehow worse, as if there's a hierarchy of sin and homosexuals sit atop this dismal assortment of perversion. However, this is not the case. The Bible never declares that homosexuality is the worst kind of sin. This is normally seen and, and preached through in the book of Romans, chapter 1. Check it out. For this reason, God gave them to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Romans passage is not trying to set up a hierarchy of sin as if homosexuality is the apex of everything going wrong, but it does point out that it's a clear indication when homosexuality is happening that things have gone bad because it flies right in the face of God's design. That's what it means by natural relations, how God has intended us. Even though basic understanding of a union needs both a male and a female to work. Try to bolt something down with two male ends or two female ends. It doesn't work. It's unnatural. We were designed male and female, but not just any male or any female. It's not interchangeable. It's not that it doesn't matter what we want and whenever we want it. 
That doesn't work. It's God's way. He made it. He's intended it. He has given it purpose. We see this brokenness and sin affect the very lives of the characters of the book of Genesis. There's people taking more than one wife. There's having sex with prostitutes. The Bible never presents the story of the, of the scriptures with a rose-colored lenses. It's always tragically accurate to the failings of these men and women found in its pages. So without a doubt, the story is condemning homosexual rape. Yet the Bible stands unified against all sexual activity outside of the union of one man and one woman for life. Even while its characters flounder in their own pathetic brokenness, this ultimately points forward to the need of a perfect substitute, a rescuer, the, the snake crusher. The story goes from bad to worse pretty quick as we turn back. Lot's beginning to step out of his door to intercede with these men of Sodom. Here's what it looks like in verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing for these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What? You know, Lot here may be commended for trying to save these men from this crowd, yet this offering of his daughters to them is just crazy, and it is truly just another part of this series of crazy events happening in this story. As it continues, verse 9, And they said, these are the men of Sodom, Stand back! This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge, which he was because he was sitting at the gate. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. This interaction between Lot and the men of Sodom is interesting. See, Lot lived among them, but more than likely he had become a respected man in the community because only judges and men like that sat at the gate of a city. Lot had become as much as he could a citizen of Sodom. Yet at this point, they rejected his standing among them. This fellow who came to sojourn because he would not consent to their egregious acts. See, Lot was living compromised among the men of Sodom. This righteous man, and he is seen as righteous because he's carried off from the city before it's destroyed. See, he's seen negotiating with these wicked men rather than judging them. Something he was afforded to, afforded because of his position when the angels had met him at the gate. I love how 2 Peter 2, 7-9 confirms Lot's righteousness, but checks him a little bit. And if he, that's God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he had saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until a day of judgment. God knows who are his. He will walk through and deliver us from the trials, even the ones of our own making. Because Lot had caused this dreadful episode in his life, because earlier he had just shrugged off sin and did not stand for who he was in God and stand for his righteousness, Lot saw the sin of Sodom before that night of the angel's visitation. That's what Second Peter is claiming. 
he had been tormented and did nothing. Lot demonstrates the compromised place we find ourselves in aligning our hearts to the surrounding with this world. Lot cared deeply for Sodom, but it was a detestable place to the Lord. We likewise are prone to be like Lot, seeking this world above and beyond, even at the intentional exclusion of Christ's kingdom. We ought to take a pause individually and ask if what we are watching and cheering on in our society is an indication of who we really are because of what Jesus has done. I think of Paul's admonishment in Romans 12, 1 through 2, as a key in this process of thinking. Check it out. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This world can tempt us and lead us astray into putting our hope here rather than in Christ. And if your heart is chased after nationalism and rejoiced in the capital riotous crowds this past week, then you are in danger of Lot's disastrous end. If you've surrounded yourself with people who chant the death of officials or peace officers, then you may not be counted among the transgressors as a righteous person, but you are endangered in being disillusioned with the world like Lot. Lot sought to be loved by the world, so he kept his head down and did not speak up until it was too late. He cared what others thought about him more than caring for them as people made in God's image need of reconciliation. Lot lived compromised, even though he was righteous. Jesus calls us away from this compromised place so that we are in this world, but not of it. Check out John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they have, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, Christianity was meant to be a city on a hill, not a national identity. Christianity requires a first-level allegiance that will not always align to political or social issues or agendas. Jesus for sure was political. He spoke toward political implications, yet he was not partisan. He took no side. Much like this passage, we have actually seen this pre-incarnate sighting of Jesus as a Christophany in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And here in this passage, it gives us a great insight into whose side God is on. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you our adversary? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. At first, the account makes us believe that this was a messenger, is merely just an angel from God. Yet only God's presence is accompanied 
with the warning that one should take off its sandals, for the place where they stand is holy. This is the same language used when God met with Moses in the burning bush that never burned up. If there were ever a time that God was going to take sides in a conflict, be partisan, it would be with the Israelites taking the land God had promised them to take. However, as Joshua asks which side he fights on, he demonstrates that he stands above all other sides. He is not forced to take sides. He is the God of all who are made in his image. God, from all accounts, should have taken a side in this conflict, but he does not. I think that confirms what we need to hear about our current circumstances in our own country. We are called to a citizenship that is not tied to earthly authority, rather to a heavenly one. I love Philippians 3 verse 20 for this reason. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This does not mean that we don't obey our leaders or even vote them in, but it does mean that we subject ourselves to our heavenly authority first and foremost and not allow our allegiances to this world be unequivocally tied to the heavenly one. God is not partisan. That does not mean that you can't vote or even be a Democrat, Republican, or any other partisan affiliation. It does mean that you ought to not tie Christianity to one or the other. There are things that should not occupy our hearts of believers as the first position priorities. Rather, we should be more like Abraham, lest we end up like Lot, sitting afraid, conflicted, lonely, and morally wrecked. This is where Lot is dragged to save him. He's truly conflicted. Check out verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck blindness, the men that were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. The angels grab Lot and they tell him that they have to leave. They tell him to grab anyone else that would be counted among Lot's family from the city. So Lot's two future son-in-laws, he goes to them and they think he's joking when he tells them that they have to leave because it's going to be destroyed. So they're left behind. Lot, his wife, and two daughters leave with the angels. Yet, as the story unfolds, Lot's leaving was pretty apathetic. The angels are decisive and clear to them to leave. But it says in verse 16, But he, that's Lot, lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, and the Lord, being merciful to him, that's merciful to Lot, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot had allowed his heart to be entangled in the city of Sodom. Yet, even though this is true, God shows mercy. Let's discuss this question together. What from this world entangles your heart? As we pick up the remaining narrative, the end gets darker and darker for Lot's family. As they make their escape, the angels warn them to not turn back and set their hearts in the direction of Sodom. Verse 17, And as they brought them out and said, Escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. 
Lot then intercedes for the small town of Zor because he can't make it to the hill country. But wait, didn't the angels just say that they should hurry to escape so they would make it to the hills? But still, the angels go with Lot's wishes and grant him his intercession, allowing him to go to the city and sparing it from destruction. Once Lot and his family are in the city, God rains down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying them. And Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Lot had entangled himself and his family's hearts in a place that led his wife to dismiss the warning, and thus she bore the consequence. The rest of the narrative continues to be as bleak as this. The remaining verses of chapter 19 explain how Lot and his daughters left Zor and went to the hill country. Yeah, the same hill country Lot didn't want to go to in the first place. And there his daughters get him drunk and have sex with their father, becoming pregnant by way of incest. Lot is a complete mess by the end of the story. His fortunes are wrecked. He's lost everything. His family's in a disoriented, dysfunctional place. And this is where the path of love for this world leads. Lot stands as a warning to us on how even a righteous person can find themselves disillusioned when God fulfills his promises and the things he is clinging to are swept away in God's judgment. We as Christians, Jesus representatives, are called to be in the world, but not of it. So the world should not form us or give us purpose and meaning. Our mission to help all people experience new life in Jesus supersedes elections, governments, social media sensibilities, societal politeness, and moral apathy. We are called to be his witnesses, yet Jesus was still in the presence of sinners. We have to reach out and connect with people far from God, yet we cannot allow them to inform who we are or what we are to be about. They will want us to conform to what they, how they live their lives. However, their desires guide them, but this is antithetical to the gospel we believe. The gospel reminds us that we have gone our own way and sinned against God. We have rejected him as king, being separated from him by death. Yet God, being rich in mercy, sends Jesus to live and die as our substitute so that we might receive his righteousness by faith. And it's this righteousness, this faith we live by, as we extend the life-giving power of the gospel to others, we cannot sit idly by, wishing all well, fully aware that their end was the same as ours, but by the grace of God in, Christ, in Jesus Christ. They need to meet with Jesus. They need hope and forgiveness that they may not even realize they need. This is not done in a belittling way, but rather through a gracious life-on-life -life relationship where they see Jesus in us. Today, we saw the responses of two men to God's mission, to his revelation. One joins God in his mission and compassionately intercedes on the behalf of others. And the other man, Lot, misses out on the opportunity to partner with God on mission because he has entangled himself with this world. The outcomes of these two righteous men stand as a warning to all those who follow Christ. It's a sober warning to remind us that we live, how we live matters in the outcome of our lives. Maybe today there's something you need to lay down or step away from 
I encourage you to take time, even now, to process that and lay it at Jesus' feet. We all want our lives to matter, but we have to watch out for the things that steal our attention from God's work through us to others. Thank you for tuning in today, and we will see you back next week as we continue in our series, Genesis. Genesis.